before we released this episode, I asked my friends and family a question. What country is Hong Kong in? I got a couple different answers. It's its own country, it's China. It's its own country, but China actively disputes its sovereignty. The real answer is, well, complicated. The most effective way to answer the question is to give a quick history of the tiny 246 square miles known as Hong Kong. In the third century BCE, the territory that now comprises Hong Kong first came under Chinese rule during the Qing dynasty. It remained part of the Chinese empire for about 2,000 years. The first Europeans arrived in Hong Kong in the 1500s. Hong Kong's geographical location on the South China Sea made it a mouth-watering trade port for European colonists. From 1842 to 1898, the British Empire gradually seized the three main regions that make up modern-day Hong Kong through the two opium wars. Except for a brief Japanese occupation of Hong Kong during World War II, Hong Kong was under British control until 1997. At midnight on July 1st, 1997, Hong Kong returned to Chinese control after a century and a half under British colonial rule. However, Hong Kong wasn't completely absorbed into China. When Hong Kong was handed back to China, a de facto constitution known as the Basic Law was enacted. The Basic Law establishes the principle of one country, two systems. This means that Hong Kong would be part of the People's Republic of China, but still maintain a distinct, democratic, legal, and political system independent of mainland China. The Basic Law was also set up to provide Hong Kongers with certain democratic freedoms, such as freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, which don't exist in China. So through the Basic Law, Hong Kong is technically a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. I told you, it was complicated. But unlike most laws and constitutions, the Basic Law was given an expiration date, 2047. The rights granted to Hong Kongers were to only last for 50 years. However, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has looked to erode the Basic Law long before 2047. In 2019, the world watched as massive protests broke out in Hong Kong. Pro-democracy Hong Kongers hit the streets in opposition to an extradition bill that would allow criminal suspects in Hong Kong to be sent to mainland China, where Hong Kongers would be subject to arbitrary detention, unfair trials, and overall the harsh Chinese judicial system. After the civil unrest led by young Hong Kongers, the extradition bill was scrapped. Unfortunately, though, it's not that simple and there's a catch. Since those 2019 protests and the extradition bill being thrown out, Hong Kong has faded a bit from the world headlines, but things haven't really gotten much better. We'll talk more about this quote-unquote catch later and why many Hong Kongers feel that they're just as bad off now as they would have been under the extradition bill. I spoke with Alex, one of the many young Hong Kongers who are passionate about the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong. Alex is actually her alias as she fears speaking out against the Chinese Communist Party with her real name is too risky. Over the centuries, Hong Kong has gone from a sparsely populated fishing village to a city with over 7.4 million people. It has risen to be one of the world's great metropolises, but its future is unknown as China continues to overreach into Hong Kong. I talked with Alex about what Hong Kong has been like, what it's like right now, and what it will be like in the future. Hey, Alex, thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to ask you 
uh, firstly, how much influence does China have in Hong Kong right now? I mean, nobody really knows exactly because we're still under the facade of one country, two systems, and that we have our own government. But I'm pretty convinced that the reality is that Beijing has ultimate control of Hong Kong. So would you say overall, just your sense of the kind of landscape of Hong Kong right now, overall, do you think people of Hong Kong want less Chinese influence? Two million people, Hong Kong people, peacefully protested. That's an awful lot of our population in this tiny city. I think it's without a doubt that the people of Hong Kong want less Chinese influence. But the whole thing about one country, two systems is not that we have to cut off contact with China or that we can't do business with them. But despite everything and despite how intimately we're working together, that we maintain judiciary independence from them. And that has evidently not been true. I know most of the the protests happened last year. Mm -hmm. Are the police still arresting people from those protests last year? I wouldn't say it's like the average protester, but it's definitely like the notable figures that organize the protests and the people who have been outspoken about these protests. Do you know what happens to protesters in Hong Kong after they are arrested? Like, where do they go? How long are they held? Things to that nature? Yeah, um, I think the ones, the bigger figures, they were just like held there for like 48, 24 or 48 hours. But that's not counting the protesters that we don't know were arrested, like people who aren't famous, but spoke out for their beliefs. We don't know at all what happens to, to them. And I think as of right now, the most reasonable guess would be that, you know, they're sent to China. And once they're in China, obviously, China's not following Hong Kong law to, pro- to prosecute these protesters i'm assuming they're following their own law which is as probably most people know extremely you know harsh yeah for sure and like unreasonable and almost like a tool of control so you're basically saying that china has control over how these hong kong protesters are handled i think i would say they have all control Mm. as of right now yeah on top of that you think that the police in Hong Kong are probably taking direct orders from Beijing. For sure. Even early on in the protests in 2019, there were clips of just like police cars crossing the border into Hong Kong or like people catching the police speaking Mandarin. Bits and pieces like that, people kind of could, they can kind of weave the story together. Or even if they're not from the mainland, they're probably their actions or their abuse of power is endorsed by the state. So remember in the intro when I mentioned that quote-unquote catch after the extradition bill was scrapped? Well, let's get into that now. So the extradition bill proposed in 2019 was a sneaky attempt by China to pass an extradition law in Hong Kong's own legislative branch through Hong Kong's own legislators. But it became impossible to pass into law through Hong Kong's council because it was so unpopular with the people of Hong Kong. So in June of 2020, the Chinese Communist Party bypassed their attempts to pass an extradition law through the Hong Kong legislature and enacted a new law for Hong Kong in the Chinese capital of Beijing through the Chinese Communist Party's legislature. This new law was titled the National Security Law. 
Alex describes this new national security law as a catch-all. Articles were kept secret until the bill was passed, but we know them now. These articles include provisions such as Crimes of secession, terrorism, and or collusion with foreign forces are punishable by a maximum sentence of life in prison. Damaging public transportation facilities can be considered terrorism. Beijing will establish a new security office in Hong Kong. Criminal cases can be tried in mainland China, just like the old extradition bill. Some trials will be heard behind closed doors, and people suspected of breaking the law can be wiretapped and put under surveillance. And if you're found guilty of any of these provisions under the national security law, you can never hold public office. And of course, Beijing added a provision that stated China, not any Hong Kong judicial or policy branch, will have power over how these laws will be interpreted. I asked Alex more about this new national security law. So even though that extradition bill didn't pass, you're saying that the national security law that did pass essentially did the same thing that the extradition bill was trying to do? Yes, and more. Because I think people saw the extradition bill as something like softer, that they would be like, oh, uh, the implication was that if you did something that the state didn't like, they could punish you for it. But the national security law is, it's like way more shameless than the extradition law. Not not in the fact that like, oh, people can imply that they're trying to silence us. It's that this is obviously about silencing us and not about reducing terrorism. And because they have the military and the actual means to enforce it, nobody can really do anything about it. Would you say the national security law is sort of a sign that China only intends to extend its influence in Hong Kong? I think it's way past the first sign of it, but this is kind of like the confirmation. Like, there's no really going back now. I think if you told any Hong Konger um, in early 2019 about what's happening right now, they would be like, oh, like, I can't believe that. And I think their response to all of our protests and then passing the national security law with their own in their own government and not through Hong Kong's was like a confirmation of how just terrible the Communist Party is. I asked Alex what it was like in Hong Kong after the national security law passed. She told me about a lunch break that may seem sort of inconsequential, but made her realize that the national security law was going to have a serious impact. Before she talks about it, I'll give everyone listening some context. A lot of restaurants in Hong Kong are very invested in the pro-democracy movement. Before the national security law passed, you could go online and find a list of restaurants with owners that were pro-democracy and not pro-CCP. In Hong Kong, these restaurants are known as yellow restaurants or yellow stores. The restaurants that get a lot of red money from China and are pro-CCP are known as blue stores. When protests died down after 2019, these yellow restaurants and stores tried to keep the momentum of the movement going by putting up stickers, figurines, posters, etc. with pro-democracy statements like Hong Kong Democracy Now!, Protect One Country Two Systems!, and Freedom of Speech Must Remain. This allowed pro-democracy Hong Kongers to explicitly know which shops and stores they could support without supporting the Chinese Communist Party. But after the national security law passed, 
These yellow restaurants and stores began to remove all pro-democracy materials from their stores as they feared punishment from the CCP. Alex tells us more. I remember on the day after the national security law was passed, I remember passing by this restaurant, um, getting takeout, and just seeing their staff very like working very hard to scrape off these stickers that they had on their window pane. And I just remember feeling so heartbroken because while on some level I already I, I was already grieving the fact that we would not get the autonomy and the independence that we were promised, but I was still comforted by the fact that this ideology can live in silence, even if we're not protesting. And I could see bits and pieces of it everywhere. But like them scraping it off really felt like the last straw of people not being able to say what they want and express what they want. Now, with the national security law in place, it effectively blanket silenced all of us. And, you know, none of us, like nobody wants to do anything if speaking out about their beliefs and their ideology will put them in prison for life. And I think everything kind of happened in tandem with COVID-19. It would be impossible for us to have a two million person protest. And if we did have something like that, the government would blame the outbreak on the people. And that's not what we want either. And during the whole quarantine and the second wave, the government kind of used that period of silence as an opportunity to introduce these aggressive laws. And people were pretty angered about it, but at the same time, they couldn't do anything about it because the virus is feels more like a pressing issue and a health issue. Politicians in Hong Kong, ones that are democratically elected to the Hong Kong Council, do most of them eventually get corrupted by the Chinese government? Or are there some who stay true to Hong Kong, stay true to the pro-democracy ideology? I mean, for sure there are. Um, There are people who have a lot of integrity and are not, you know, sold out or beneficiaries of (laughs) red money. But I think a lot of those politicians have been more quiet since the national security law passed. And for you to say something that's obviously against the law is kind of like, in Chinese we call this song yuan ya fu hao, like sending a sheep into a tiger's mouth. Like it's just a death wish on yourself. And I think even politicians themselves have been trying to like gauge right now how scary everything will be. Do you think that Hong Kongers at this point are basically saying, do you think they've basically conceded that democratic values are lost and Hong Kong will be engulfed by China? Mm, I think that's what we think in the short run. But I think with the amount of international support we've been getting, a lot of us do have more hope about the distant future. I think a lot of us acknowledge that if things could, you know, like if things can go to shit so quickly for us, it also means that like history will change and the future will evolve in a way that I think most of us don't feel like we can predict. Um, But in the short run, I would say people are feeling pretty pessimistic. So they're sort of pessimistic in the short term, but optimistic that in the long run, they'll be able to with, with, you know, keep some of their democratic values. Yeah. And obviously, I'm coming from a very privileged 
vantage point because I study overseas. I have the option of moving away if this is not something I want to live under. But many of the people working minimum wage who don't, who didn't go to college, like those people are kind of stuck here. And so to them, their vision of the future might look even more grim. So people, as, as your class rises, you sort of feel that you have more of a chance to flee if things really get bad and people in the lower classes feel sort of stuck and if things turn south. Definitely. It also goes in tandem with like how pessimistic or optimistic they feel about the future. And it's also another another axis that the wealthier they are in Hong Kong, the more likely they have something to do with red money or they benefit from red money. So I, from personal observation, I feel like your political stance about Hong Kong and mainland has a lot to do with um, your wealth. I'm wondering for people like you and other pro-democracy Hong Kongers, What's the perfect scenario for the future? Is it a totally sovereign nation where Hong Kong is its own state? Is it still this kind of joint one country, two systems? What's in your mind as a pro-democracy person and other pro-democracy Hong Kongers, what's the perfect future? I think right now the most probable scenario I can think of is just a ref- like reforming the Chinese Communist Party. I think right now power is too concentrated on the one president and I think it would require a whole reform of the party in order to put people's interests first and not the politicians own wealth and power first. So you're saying that your hope and other and you believe other people's hopes in Hong Kong is not that necessarily the relationship changes between Hong Kong and China but that China changes. I think we have come to a point of realizing that the relationship will never change unless China in itself changes. Right. But I do wonder, like, if you could have, don't think about realistic, you know, politics, don't think about it. If you had, you know, if you could snap your fingers and it would happen tomorrow, would you want Hong Kong to be its own country? I think no. And I think not, most of us have not, in the first place, when everything started, when people still had a bit of like faith and optimism about the CCP, um, I think people were more open to the idea of like, like we just kind of have to talk this out and please honor one country, two systems. But how does China change? Because it seems like right now, at least from a Westerner's point of view, doesn't look like there's any momentum for China to have any sort of structural political change in their country. Yeah, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't have the answer. I think the one I can imagine is just international pressure and trade wars, things that will kind of force them into reforming. So in this episode, we talked about the 2047 expiration of the basic law, and we know that China has already eroded a lot of the principles and freedoms of the basic law. But do you see something concrete happening in 2047? Something big that when that date hits, when that year hits, something really tangible is going to happen between Hong Kong and China? I think for a long time, I tried to imagine it, and a lot of Hong Kongers tried to imagine it too. But like in light of how much life 
and reality here has changed since 2019, it's hard, it would be extremely hard to imagine because wouldn't they have already, if they remain as a world power, China, then it would be true that they wouldn't have to wait until then to completely mainlandify Hong Kong. So then, no, nothing would really happen because it would have happened before 2047. Um, and so I think like most people don't really see that as a important date anymore, but rather some sort of like, it's like irony. Uh, it kind of mocks us. Like you thought you were given that much time. Psych. Do you think that Hong Kongers are, do you think they miss as, you know, as weird as this sounds, you know, British rule was a form of colonialism, but do you think that Hong Kongers sort of miss the British days in a sort of weird, twisted way? This is definitely not a twisted or weird question, and it's actually a very common sentiment. Um, it's the, like, I don't think, if you went back in time, I don't think people were especially glad about the British rule. It, you know, you suddenly have a bunch of white people coming in and they think, you know, they're better than everyone here. But nowadays, with how everything is unfolding under the rule of China, a lot of people are romanticizing that era of Hong Kong. And this is quite evident with the fact that, like, in Hong Kong protests, you'll see, like, I mean, last year, you'll see people holding up, like, the Union Jack flag, and some people are, like, waving, I think, the U.S. flag. But it's my own opinion that our frustration and our anger with Beijing is not an excuse for any nostalgia of the British rule. Because by doing that, we're effectively dismissing how the British treated its other colonies so Britain could prosper. And so what the British rule did is, in, in principle, not that different to the selfishness and greed that the Chinese Communist Party has exhibited. And so I think falling back on that kind of nostalgia is, you know, ironic and it's hypocritical. I want to talk a little bit about the culture of Hong Kong, especially um, the cinematic culture of Hong Kong, because one of the things I think that sticks out to a lot of Westerners is um, the films that come out of Hong Kong, whether they be Wong Kar Wai films or, or old Bruce Lee films, et cetera, et cetera. Do you fear that these artistic expressions are going to become less and less with China's extended reach? I think that they already are less and less. Like our entertainment industry went to shits after the handover and wait, like nowadays it's I don't even think it's like I don't even think locals pay attention to our own entertainment industry anymore, if I'm being honest. We just don't have funding and the culture of like working long hours and having a strong finance culture being quite money oriented it's just completely eaten away at how brave they can be about pursuing the arts and so it's just not been a society that's conducive to creativity i want to fast forward to let's say like 2060 right mm -hmm. i know this might be hard to imagine but is hong kong just another chinese megacity at that point we don't know you know my dad always says you know we imagined the soviet union to last forever and it didn't so really, I don't know. I don't, the optimist in me says that we will be under a Chinese rule that's democratic and open. So to kind of 
end this on a positive note. Um, I want to just ask you what you love about Hong Kong, what, you know, inspires you about Hong Kong, why you love it so much. Oh, I think in the past, if you asked me this question when I was a bit younger, I would definitely say something about the food because the food here is remarkable and cheap, very cheap compared to the States. Um, But I think one thing that's definitely undeniable now is my appreciation for the Hong Kong spirit. And by that, I mean like our strength, our unique identity, our resilience, and our ability to come together and to stand up for something we all believe in. I just, I love that about Hong Kong people. And it's something that I will forever hold in my heart. And I try to embody to the best of my ability. Awesome. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you talking to me. No, thank you for having me. China's rise over the last few decades, not really as a typical communist state, but as a one-party authoritarian industrial economic giant, has unfortunately, as Alex describes it, been in tandem with the fall of Hong Kong. There seems to be a bit of despair looming over Hong Kong right now, inaction caused by fear, but Hong Kongers are keeping hope in their hearts that their democratic values will not be lost forever. One of the principal slogans adopted by the innovative and uniquely organized Hong Kong protesters was a famous Bruce Lee quote, be water. Hong Kongers are fluid, like water, adapting smartly to what's thrown at them, but always on the path towards democracy. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend.